So I want to start off by encouraging you and saying as we come to the word of God, what we're coming to is to look at the things that we should have learnt in the last 12 months. So this passage we're going to read in Deuteronomy is really looking at the things that we should have learnt during our time in the wilderness. I would even dare to say we have had the remarkable privilege of 12 months in the wilderness with God. And to my mind, it has been a huge privilege. When God took Israel into the wilderness, it was because he wanted to establish an intimate relationship with them. Actually, wilderness means to speak. He wanted to speak to them in such a way that when they came out, they had an intimate relationship with him. Now let's look at what he says. So Deuteronomy chapter 29 verse 1. These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded to Moses to make with the sons of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant which he made with them at Horeb. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Have you seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land? The great trials which your eyes have seen, those great signs and wonders. Yet to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. I have led you forty years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandal has not worn out on your foot. And you've not eaten bread, nor have you drunk wine, nor strong drink, in order that you might know that I am the Lord your God. When you reach this place, Shion the king of Heshbon and Og the king of Bashan came out to meet us for battle, but we defeated them. And we took their land and gave it as an inheritance to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of the Manassites. So keep the words of the covenant to do them, that you may prosper in all that you do. So what we've got here in the book of Deuteronomy is a restating of the covenant. And God starts by saying, these are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the sons of Israel in the land of Moab. So there they are sitting beside the Jordan, ready to go over. And he says, I'm going to place the words of that covenant alongside the covenant I made at Horeb. That's Mount Sinai. And it is as if God says there are two covenants here, one I made at Mount Sinai and the one I'm making here with you. Actually, the two covenants are identical. What is the difference? The difference is the people. The people who came out of Egypt barely knew their God at all. I mean, just consider for a moment how much those people standing at Mount Sinai knew of the Lord their God. And then we'll compare it with what the people knew in Moab of the Lord their God. You see, just turn with me, keep your finger in um, Deuteronomy 29, turn with me to Exodus verse 1. And we get a little bit of a picture of 
what the people knew who were standing at Mount Sinai all those 40 years earlier. So Exodus chapter 6 verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I shall do to Pharaoh, for under compulsion he will let you go, and under compulsion he will drive them out of his land. God spoke further to Moses and said, I am the Lord your God. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name Lord I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them and gave them the land of Canaan in which they sojourned. These people at Mount Sinai, when the first covenant was made, knew that they had a history. They understood something of their history. They knew that 400 years earlier, God had spoken to the patriarchs. 400 years ago is the time of the Tudor monarchs. We're talking about Henry VIII, Elizabeth I. We're talking about Tudor England. That's how long ago it was for these people. It was a very, very long time. I mean, just work out in your own mind, what do you really know about Henry VIII? He had a weight problem. He had a few wives... He liked a bit of music. He could joust a bit. But you know nothing else, really. We know very, very little. Imagine how much the children of Israel knew about the patriarchs and their relationship with God. Almost nothing. 400 years had elapsed. Just vague history to them. Well, let's read on. So they had a vague knowledge that God had met with some of their forebears. And then in verse 5 of Exodus chapter 6, it says, Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel, because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. So suddenly, these children at Sinai, or the, the children of Egypt, Israel in Egypt, realize for themselves that God is alive. He is a God who hears. Not only is he a living God, but he knows them personally and knows their situation in life personally. I mean, just think back to the time when you first knew that God was alive and that he knew you intimately and personally. It was the beginning of God calling you to himself, wasn't it? It was the beginning of salvation for you was when you realized that there was a living God and that he knew you. So they knew that God was living and knew them. Let's see, read on. Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord who will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from their bondage. Of course, they knew that intimately, didn't they? They had seen the deliverance from Egypt. Do you remember that time when you were born again of the Spirit of God and you knew that you had been delivered from the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ? And perhaps you knew something of the bondages released in your life. And you knew what it was to be saved by God and delivered out of the world and to be given purpose. 
Then it says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great judgments. I remember some things that God did in my life that I had not been able to do myself. And it was as if God said, I will redeem you with great judgments. And things changed. Wonderful. But actually, just the beginning of things. Just the beginnings. And then God goes on to tell them what he wants to reveal to them. And he says, then I will take you for my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and I will give it to you for a possession. Now I don't know what happened after your conversion. Um, Different things happened to different people. Um, I imagine if you went, I didn't do this, I didn't respond at a rally, but I imagine if you responded at a Billy Graham rally or something like that, you got fed into a church and you may or may not have been given some understanding that God had a purpose for you in your life. You may not even have been given that. I, for myself, I came under some quite good teaching, so I knew that God had a purpose for me. But it's one thing to know that God has a purpose for you and another to see him fulfill it, isn't it? You know, I imagine these people, or Moses, when he recounted all this to these people in Egypt, when he said, I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and give it to you for a possession, I imagine they thought that would happen on Monday. You know, I'll do that for you. It's going to be next week. And another week went by, and another week went by, and another week went by, and it hadn't happened, and it hadn't happened, and it hadn't happened. And suddenly you realise, actually, God has condensed all of this down into a very brief paragraph, and there's an awful lot of learning to go on in between these things. The wilderness is where the learning happens. And so these people who we meet in Moab are people who should have been much more mature than the people who were standing at Mount Sinai. The people who were standing at Mount Sinai were like us when we're first saved. The people who stand in Moab are the people we should be when we are to come into the thing that the Lord has for us. They are the mature people who are coming into their possession, who are coming into the fruitful ministry that God wants them to have. And this book is a taking stock of what they have learnt on that road. Well, the wilderness was incredibly difficult, wasn't it? I mean, we... I don't know whether any of you have been to Mount Sinai and been in the um, wilderness of Sinai. I have, actually. I went into that area of, it was then Israel, it was just handed back to Egypt the year after I was there in 1981. It was handed back very shortly afterwards. It's a terrible place. I mean, it is so hot and the ground is rocky, stony, it's terrible underfoot. It's not a pleasant place to be at all. And yet, It was a place of being locked apart to God. What happens when they get into the wilderness is there is no mobile phone coverage. Okay, there's no mobile phone coverage. There's none of the distractions of ordinary life. 
It is as if God plucks them up from their ordinary lives and sticks them away, socially distanced from everyone else, locked in their own homes, unable to go to their churches, unable to meet together, and says, now you're going to have a relationship with me. And the question is, have we learnt from this wilderness? It's been a very difficult year for every one of us. Very difficult. Have we learnt to have a relationship with the Lord our God during this year in the way in which Israel should have learnt to have a personal relationship with the Lord their God in the wilderness. And that is the challenge. And the reason I'm bringing this now is because it's good to take stock because we still have time. God willing, we only have a few months, but maybe we have a bit longer. I don't know. But we do have a few months. And you might come round at the end of this evening and say, ah, oh, I don't think I've quite got this personal relationship thing working properly. You've still got a few months. That's the good thing about taking stock, is that you can do it when there is time left. So let's have a look at what they should have learnt, shall we? Well, verse 5. I have led you for 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you. Your sandal is not worn out on your foot. You've not eaten bread, nor have you drunk strong wine or wine or strong drink, in order that you might know that I am the Lord your God. All of these things are so that they might know God. Now, the first thing I want to do, there are four things there. And those four things are, your clothes have not worn out. That's the first thing. The second thing is, your sandals have not worn out. The third thing is you have not eaten manna, or you've eaten manna, not bread, not natural bread, you've eaten manna. And the, the fourth thing is that they hadn't drunk wine or strong drink, they'd drunk water from the rock. So four things. And I want to, if you take them all together, if we take them all as a single bundle What God is saying to them is, I have provided everything which you need. I have provided for all your needs. And it's worth seeing that in a totality because Jesus pointed out much the same thing. Actually, he came very close to saying exactly the same thing to his disciples, but he said it in a slightly different way. I have to say, when you put these two passages side by side, you sort of wonder what Jesus had in mind when he said it. Let me read to you Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 uh, and on. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. That's your clothes, of course, isn't it? Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, nor do they reap, nor gather into their barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, being worried, can add a single hour to his life? Why are you worried about your clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They don't toil or spin. 
Yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles easily seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and his, these things will be added to you. You see, what God is really saying is, I love you and I will provide for you. What I desire is a loving relationship with you. Seek first this loving relationship with me and I will provide all these things for you. Look what I did for the children of Israel in the wilderness. I provided all those things for them because what I wanted was an intimate relationship with them. I have on some occasions likened the wilderness to a young man taking a young woman to Costa because he fancies her and he wants to go out with her and he takes her to Costa and they sit and they chat and they get to know one another. That is what the wilderness is about. That is what the last 12 months has been about for us. Getting to know your God personally. Imagine what it would be like if you took a girl or a boy to Costa in order to get to know them because you wanted to ask them out and they sat there with their mobile phone all day long, you know, all through the thing, texting their friend. I mean, you'd give up, wouldn't you? You know, you sort of think, you love the mobile phone more than me. Why should I bother? We shouldn't be distracted through this time, precious time, that we are locked down to our God in our houses. Do not be distracted by your mobile phone, whatever that may happen to be. It's a very precious time. Now, let's look at each one of those things. Each one of those four things is really important. Your clothes have not worn out. All of these things are so that you might know that I am the Lord your God. Remember, that's what God says. I did all these things so that you might know that I am the Lord your God. That's what he says in Deuteronomy. So each one of these things is so that we might know God. Your clothes have not worn out. Now, just imagine for one moment what would have happened if their clothes had worn out. They stead out on day one and they've got their nice clothes on. They've put their suit on. They've had a rare occasion when they can go out and see real people. And so they put their nice clothes on and off they set. After a month, their clothes look a bit dirty. After six months, they look a bit ragged. After a year, they're getting a bit sort of threadbare. After ten years, they're all walking round stark naked. Okay? So... The fact that their clothes did not wear out means that their nakedness was covered. God covered their nakedness for the whole time that they were in that wilderness. What is 
covering nakedness about? Well, nakedness, really, when we're naked, everything that you are is seen, it is visible. Exactly what you're like is visible. All of your sin uh, is there for everybody to see. Do you remember Adam and Eve? When when they'd sinned, they knew they were naked. The first thing they tried to do was cover it up. They made those garments of fig leaves. And then, of course, they knew they were no good, which is why they hid themselves and said to God, we're naked. They weren't. They were standing in fig leaves. Just the fig leaves didn't do anything, really. Um, So God has covered your sin for the last 12 months. I wonder how much of the last 12 months you have replicated the life of Israel in the wilderness. What do I mean by that? Grumbled, complained, moaned, being grumpy, refused, you know, etc., etc., etc. I mean, that's what being in the wilderness brings out in us. It brings out all these behaviours that, that Israel showed, you know. All of that sin which has basically come out, grumbling and complaining and moaning, um, God has covered You know, as we confess our sin, God is faithful and just and forgives us our sin and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. You know, their sin remained covered. Isn't God a wonderful God? Throughout the last 12 months, where you have moaned and groaned and complained, God has covered your sin. Your clothes have not worn out. Actually, more than that. Let me read to you from Revelation chapter 3. Verse 18, I advised you to buy from me gold refined from the fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you might clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness not be revealed. God not only wants to cover your nakedness, he wants to cover your nakedness in such a way that your garments appear to everybody to be white. Imagine what your local community would think if actually through lockdown your life just radiated peace, security, constancy, faithfulness in God. You weren't grumbling and complaining. You weren't moaning. You were actually just sympathetic to their needs, confident in the Lord your God. White garments in your community. What a witness to God. Let's look at the next thing. Your sandal has not worn out on your foot. So what do these sandals speak of? Well, of course, um, I I mentioned to you that I have actually been through this area that they travelled through. And I can assure you, if your sandals wore out and you ended up travelling barefoot, you would stumble and fall. In fact, you would have been crawling on all fours. You simply couldn't walk. It, was, it is too hostile underfoot to walk without falling and stumbling and so on. And what does it say in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 15? Have your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. One of the things I have seen about lockdown and the last 12 months is the importance of being at peace with God and at peace with your fellow men. 
and it has been absolutely impressed on me in very dramatic ways over this 12 months and I remember two particular incidents one was early on and it was on the evening news and there was a a young nurse in a care home and it must have been around June I would think April May June something like that in the middle of the first wave of the pandemic and this nurse was really upset And she was talking about one of the elderly care home residents. And she said, you know, this lady, she was fit and well at lunchtime. And she was dead by six o'clock. And she was absolutely shocked. How important it is to be at peace with God. It is, you know, the thing that you should have taken to heart as we have been through this pandemic, is that it's vital to be at peace with God, to keep short accounts with God. In the middle of the second wave of the pandemic, there were two young men in their 30s, brothers, sharing a house. One of them, they were both had COVID. Uh, one of them woke in the middle of the night at around two o'clock in the morning, and his brother said to him, are you all right? And he said, yes, I'm fine. He was dead by six o'clock the following morning. Short accounts with God. You know, it is vital that we remain at peace with God, but also at peace with our fellow men. I had a young lady ring me up. I'd actually spoke on being at peace with your brother fairly early on when these it began to happen. And I had a young lady ring me up and say, Oh, so grateful I immediately rang my brother and put my relationship right and this young lady had been putting it off she'd just been putting off putting something right with her brother and she would felt yes I must do it there's an urgency about it have your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel at peace you know the Lord Jesus Christ died so that we might be at peace with God but also at peace with our fellow men It says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, pursue peace with all men. Now, I know peace with men takes two parts, doesn't it? But on your part, pursue it. Doesn't mean it's necessarily going to be received. But at least you pursue it. Do what you can, whether you're received or not. Pursue peace with all men, and then it goes on to say, and the sanctification, without which no one will see the Lord. You see, one thing is for absolute certain, you won't get sanctification with God if you don't pursue peace with men. If you hold a grudge against your brother, you know, don't be surprised if, if your relationship with God suffers. It's absolutely vital. Of course, the nature of being locked down with husbands and wives, of course, is that uh, it tests our relationship, doesn't it? You know, sometimes we have to struggle. You know, you're locked 24-7 down with somebody and they irritate you. Well, it's good, isn't it? It gives you a chance to see how irritating you are. You know, if you find your husband or wife irrit- it irritates you, just work out what it is you're doing. It's causing the problem. You know, I mean, I have a wonderful wife. So my wife is lovely. Uh, But, you know, just work out who has your husband been living with for the last 50 years, you know. You say, oh, it's not the woman I married. 
Well, who's, who's she been living with? <laughs> you have not eaten bread, is the next thing. So we've got clothes, sandals, the next thing is you have not eaten bread. Well, of course, they hadn't starved to death, and the reason was because God had provided them with manna. They hadn't had to go through all the trauma of making bread. Actually, all they had to do with manna was pick it up, much easier than making bread. I can't make bread to save my life, really. Um, But they just had to go out and pick up the manna. Jesus talks about it. John chapter 6, verse 31. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it's written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it's not Moses who's given you this bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Lord, give us always this bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. I think not being able to go to church is great. There, I've said it now. You can throw me out. Why? Because it forces you to be hungry and to learn to feed on the word of God for yourself. Now, we can't go on forever like that. We will need to meet together and it's important to hear the word preached and it's important to be in a church and all those things. But actually, a time when you're not able to meet together tests Who is feeding you? That's the great thing about not being able to go to church. It's a test of who is feeding you. Are you able to feed from the word of God for yourself? And you might say, oh, I've really struggled. Well, that's great. Good to work it out now, this evening. Let's work it out now. Because you've got a couple of months to go to the Lord and say, I'm so hungry, I need you to feed me. And I can assure you, when you say to the Lord, I am starving to death, the Lord will say, I've got some bread. But you're going to need to sit down, open your Bible, and allow me to feed. It's a good test for us. Actually, God wants you to learn to feed for yourself. And so, he has removed your pastor from you. Actually, all of these things, now I don't know what the future of this country is going to be, but I do know this, that in these 12 months, God has been allowing us the preparation that we would need if we were to go into real persecution. If at some stage in our lifetimes, Christians in this country go into persecution, and I mean real persecution, where you are not allowed to meet together and you are locked up for doing so, the lessons of this 12 months are absolutely vital for you. God is giving you this time to prepare such that if you were to be persecuted, you will know how to live. Because you can live by the bread which God provides for you 
personally and it is so thrilling when he does so. It is so exciting. This bread tastes better than even the chocolate sourdough bread which you can no longer buy in Waitrose. So frustrating. As if lockdown wasn't bad enough. Waitrose have stopped selling chocolate sourdough bread. This tastes even better. This is just wonderful. This feeds the inner man. I have been, I'm meditating through Deuteronomy at the moment. I have been absolutely thrilled by it. Um, So exciting. Nor have you drunk wine or strong drink. Of course, if you think about it, wine, they'd have to have grown grapes. I mean, you just can't do it. And then you have to be settled, agrarian economy to to grow grapes, don't you? These were a nomadic people walking. Of course they hadn't made wine. They couldn't possibly do it. But they needed to drink, and so they drank water from the rock. And uh, Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says this, they all drank of the same spiritual drink, And, of course, he's talking about the children of Israel going through the wilderness. They were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. They didn't need to go thirsty. John chapter 7, verse 37. Now, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Do you know God has provided baptism in the Holy Spirit so that you might not be dry, thirsty people? You know, you may be that you're saying, Oh, I'm so dry. Well, perhaps you need baptism in the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Ask him for it. Make sure your relationship is right with God and ask the Lord Jesus to baptize you in the Holy Spirit if he hasn't done that and you're dry and you're thirsty. But actually, Paul says more than that. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, Do not get drunk with wine. Well, they couldn't do that. They didn't have any. That is dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit. In other words, go on being filled with the Spirit every single day. Be filled with the Holy Spirit every single day. So you find your husband difficult to live with, or your wife difficult to live with, or your children are driving you bonkers. Get up in the morning and say, now, Lord, I need that fresh filling of your Holy Spirit today to cope with my children. They're driving me bonkers. Fill me afresh and anew so that I can cope. I am so dry. I am so fed up with this lockdown. Didn't you provide in the wilderness the rock and the water poured forth so that they weren't dry? Now, can't you do that for me? And the Lord will hear and answer, and you will find your thirst is met. The Lord longs to meet your thirst in the dryness of lockdown. Go on being filled with the Holy Spirit every 
single day. Do not allow baptism in the Holy Spirit to be a past experience. I remember talking to a senior Baptist minister. This was many years ago, and I was, I was younger than John, actually. And I, he'd asked me to speak, and I, I, I didn't want to speak at his church weekend, really. I felt I was too young, inexperienced, but he said, David, will you come up and run the church weekend for me? And I did, because he'd asked me to do it, but I did it with my heart in my mouth, particularly as I knew this man had been used in the charismatic movement, and I spoke on the need for baptism in the Holy Spirit. And I thought, I've done it now, that's blown it. And afterwards he said to me, do you know, David, that's what we used to teach. Don't let this be that which you used to know. Call on the Lord every day for a fresh anointing of the Holy Spirit in order that you might not be dry through this time of lockdown. Right. Verse 7. We've got as far as verse 7. So those were all four things in order that we might know that the Lord is our God. And then it says in verse 7, when you reached this place. Okay, so in other words, when these things were established in your life and you had learnt these things and they had become part of your life and your relationship with me was established on the basis of these things, then we went on and did something else. So what happened when they had reached a greater position of maturity. Well, it says this. When you reach this place, Shion, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, came out to meet us in battle, and we defeated them. You see, spiritual warfare and standing strong against the enemy and overcoming the enemy involves something of maturity. Spiritual warfare is something for the mature and the Lord looks for us to reach a position of maturity in order to be available to him for spiritual warfare. Actually the Lord makes that really clear to to us if we just understand what happened to these children of Israel. You see it very clearly. So Exodus chapter 13 verse 17 tells us about the children of Israel, when they first left Egypt. This is the, the children of Israel when the Lord has just redeemed them, like the young Christian just saved that I described to you um, some half an hour ago or so. So Exodus 13, verse 17. Now when Pharaoh had let his people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was nearer. For God said the people might change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. They were too young in their relationship with him to be able to cope with with the spiritual battles that lay ahead. And so he manoeuvred them round. He took them a long way round because they they were too young for it. Now when they've reached the land of Moab, 40 years later, when they should have learnt all of these things, then they're ready for warfare. And so then, he says, now we can have warfare. 1 John 
chapter 2, verse 13, makes exactly the same point where John says this, I'm writing to you fathers because you have known him who has from, been from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you children because you know the Father. You know, when we're first born again of the Spirit of God, we know that God loves us. We know that he's alive, he's heard us, he loves us, he's saved us. But we have a childish relationship. As we grow in maturity, we are to become those who are able to overcome the evil one. Well, who was it they overcame? Well, Shion, king of the Amorites who lived in Heshbon. Shion, his name means tempestuous. Uh, It means wiping or sweeping away. And uh, one of the um, linguists who wrote a lexicon on biblical Hebrew says that his name means a leader carrying everything before him. I think of this man as being a man with a huge broom. You know, basically he just sweeps the nations away. Nothing to him. And he comes from this place called Heshbon, which is reason or understanding. Of course, that's the reason they never entered into the land at Kadesh Barnea, is because they reasoned it away. They reasoned the instructions of God away by thinking it, overthinking things and considering that actually they weren't able to do it. That was the whole point. The point was they weren't able to do it. That was the principle God was trying to establish for them. And Og, king of Bashan, well, Og was a giant, of course. Uh, We know about him because we're told about his bed, amazingly. Um, It was a giant's bed. Uh, But he comes from Bashan, and Bashan was an area of of territory. Actually, it lies to the northeast of Galilee. It's quite a long way north, surprisingly north, really, far north. It was known for its great fruitfulness, so much so that actually in the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, Moses talks about sheep of Bashan. You know, we have Jacob's sheep and other breeds of sheep, don't we, nowadays. They had sheep of Bashan. It was a breed of sheep. So fertile was the land that the sheep were named after it. Sheep of Bashan. Amazingly fruitful land. No wonder it had a giant guarding it. Not not a real surprise, is it, when you see that? Of course it would have. Well, let's read on. So now they're beginning to gain their inheritance. Once they have learnt to overcome the enemy, then they begin to be able to gain their inheritance. There's a whole process in all of this. There's an order. So when you reach this place, Shion, king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out to meet us in battle. But we defeated them. And we took their land and gave it as an inheritance for the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manassites. So keep the words of this covenant to do them, that you may prosper in all that you do. So, they were even beginning to come into their inheritance. I think the most remarkable thing about these verses that I've read to you is not what it says, but what it does not say. You know, I am sure, all about the children of Israel in the wilderness. And you will know that this is the most rosy picture you could possibly paint of those people. There is absolutely no mention 
of their idolatry, their grumbling, their complaining, their refusal to act as the Lord directed. There is no mention by Moses here of the fact that he didn't want the Reubenites, the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh to inherit this land because it was on the wrong side of the Jordan. And it is as if God says, I'm not going to go into any of that. We're just going to leave all of that on one side so that you can see what you should have learnt of me. Now it may be that this time of lockdown has for you been terrible. You have grumbled and complained, you've moaned, you've found it really difficult, you've struggled, etc., etc., etc. And it's as if God wants to say to you, look, I've seen all of that. Make sure that you're right with me over it. Just confess it, get right over it. Now understand what I have been trying to say to you. Now see me as the God that I am. I love you and I care for you. And my heart's desire is for you. And I want to love you more and draw you closer to myself. Look, your clothes have not worn out. All of that rebellion, all of that sin, all of that complaining, I've covered it all in the death of my son. Your sandals are still on your feet. You can still know peace with God and peace with man. If you go out tomorrow morning, there is still the manna for you and you can eat it. The water will still flow from the rock and I still have an inheritance for you, even the Gadites, the Reubenites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. There is still an inheritance for them. Despite, I mean, just consider them for a moment. Moses begged God to be allowed to cross the Jordan. And they said, okay, we'll go over, but we're coming back here. We'll go over grudgingly, because we must. Imagine what that was like for Moses. And yet God makes no mention of it. It is as if he is saying, look, this is a time for you to understand that I am the Lord your God. Worship me. And then he says, there right at the end, he says, so keep the words of this covenant to do them, that you may prosper in all that you do. That word prosper can be translated as wise and it means act in such a way that it brings out a favourable outcome it means to act in such a way that the outcome is that which you desire you find it used and, and translated as wisdom in the Garden of Eden when Eve looks on the tree of good and evil and sees that it's desirable to make you wise that's the reason she ate of the tree because she wanted this sort of wisdom which gives you a good outcome that you desire and God is saying you can have that if you walk in my ways what a wonderful thing 
It's almost as if the Garden of Eden is being turned upside down. And that which Eve caused Eve to sin, God is saying, you can have if you follow me. Shall we pray? Father, we're aware that for each one of us, this time of lockdown has been really difficult. Father, we're aware that we have stumbled. It's as if we've not had sandals on some of the time and we've stumbled. Lord, there have been times when we've struggled to be in your word and to feed. There are times when we've been dry. There have been times when we've been stubborn and grumbling and complaining. But Lord, we want to say through it all, you have been faithful. Lord, you have maintained us and carried us. And Lord, we have known you to be the Lord our God. And Father, we want to thank you that it is your desire that we should see you as that and we should know you as that. And that you would have established something in our lives so that we are different. Lord, our desire is to come out of this different from the way in which we went in. Lord, cause us not to be unchanged by it. Lord, our deepest desire is that this 12 months would not be wasted, but that we should be those who have grown so much in our relationship with you that we're becoming mature. Amen. I want to just finish, actually. There was something I was going to mention, and I mention it now, just by way of encouragement. The wilderness, when people come out of the wilderness, it is very often in Scripture, they come out of the wilderness into something. Just consider for a moment, Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness. When he came out, it was to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. John the Baptist came out of the wilderness into ministry. Jesus came out of the wilderness into ministry. King David came out of the wilderness into kingship. The nation of Israel came out of the wilderness into its possession and its fruitfulness. The wilderness is the place of preparation in Scripture. It is the place where ministries are forged. It is in that difficult place that God does the work in the life of a man or a woman of God. It is a wonderful opportunity for us. We've got a few months left. Let's take stock now and make sure that the the few months we've got left. I'm so grateful for Boris dragging it out. It's a tremendous mercy. It's as if Boris said, take stock now, because in a few months' time, God willing, you'll be out and then you'll be overwhelmed with stuff. Everything, everyone will be here in this room hugging each other and, you know, coffee will be flowing and all the rest of it, given whatever rules we end up with. You know, this is a precious moment. Don't let's lose it, any one of us. Thank you very much.